A safe, permanent home for the child within a reasonable period of time. The needs of the child. The child's health and welfare. The best interest of the child. These are just some of the criteria North Carolina law requires the court and a county department to look to when making a case plan and dispositional orders for a child who's been adjudicated, neglected, abused, or dependent. Now that there's been an adjudication of child neglect, in our case, we'll talk about what case planning looks like and what can be included in the different types of dispositional orders. Welcome to Season 2 of Beyond the Bench, a podcast by the North Carolina Judicial College at the UNC School of Government. I'm Sarah DePasquale, and your host for Season 2, which tells the story of homelessness, neglect, and the child welfare system in North Carolina. During this season, we'll talk about what family homelessness looks like, whether homelessness is child neglect, and if and when it is, how the child welfare system responds to families affected by homelessness. We'll do this by following two court cases from the past year that address child neglect because of allegations related to homelessness. Each episode represents a different stage in the child welfare process, and you'll hear from lots of different people who will share the various perspectives in a case, including shelter providers, county departments, a parent attorney, the children's guardian ad litem, and the court. At the end of our last episode, one of our two cases ended when the court dismissed it after concluded the child was not neglected. But in our other case... The case where the children were living with their parents in a van in the woods and were without adequate shelter, food, and hygiene, and were exposed to their parents' domestic violence, the children were adjudicated and neglected because they didn't receive proper care and supervision from a parent, and they were living in an environment injurious to their welfare. And the court entered a dispositional order. That order placed the children with their grandmother, set a visitation schedule for the parents and children, and required the parents to cooperate with the department in case planning, complete certain assessments, and participate in domestic violence counseling. In today's episode, we'll hear from the county department social workers and attorney, a parent attorney, a child's guardian ad litem, and district court judges to learn about the next steps that happen in the case, both in court and out of court. You'll be introduced to five new terms, case planning, reasonable efforts, kinship and non-kinship placements, review hearing, and permanency planning. Let's start with case planning which when I asked Chrissy Triplett, a social worker at the Catawba County Department, what case planning looked like, she said this. Case planning for, at that point in juncture, is gonna look at what were the things that brought the family into that they entered foster care, and they're gonna work with the family. What are the things that we can do, that we can support you in doing, to help you be able to get your life back on track so that you can get your children to return to your home. It is a structured out-of-home case plan that the state provides, but there's a lot of leeway for them to make a family-centered plan in that. So it's really hard to tell you because each case plan is very unique to itself. It really depends on what were the challenges that the parents were facing when they entered foster care, when the child entered foster care. Case planning involves the department providing what's called reasonable efforts which are described by Jessica Ford, a supervisor at the Catawba County Department. There are ongoing efforts that the department um, has provided to the parents to be able to assure that their children are reunified. reunified. So, you know, they could be formal um, referrals, like psychological evaluations or substance abuse assessments. Sometimes it's, you know, the, our department um, paying for particular um, assessments for them. It's services for the child. Um, anything that the department has done to try to help the family alleviate the safety concern. 
As part of case planning, those efforts are focused on addressing the issues that led to the child's removal or the child's adjudication and can include services for the children. Chrissy Triplett talks about this. Our children who are in foster care, a majority of them are in counseling services because this is a very challenging time for a child to be moved into a different home and to come into foster care. And they sometimes need help to process. What does this mean for me? This is a big significant change in their life. And also whatever brought them into foster care, they probably need help healing from. So majority of our kids are in counseling. So they are gonna work with the counselor and the social worker to talk about what's happening and so that they can process these events. Many kids are engaged in a process of what we call life book work. And this is where they have a book that tells their story of how they came into foster care, what happened, where did they live, what schools did they go through. Talks about feelings and emotions that they were feeling along the way through this process. Case planning will require the parents to take certain steps and participate in certain specified activities, many of which the department has arranged for as part of its reasonable efforts. But remember, at disposition, the focus is on the best interest of the child. What is in a child's best interest is not the same for all children, and it can change over time. The courts appointed a guardian ad litem to represent the child's best interests in case planning and in court hearings. You'll hear more about the role of a child's guardian ad litem in our next episode. Dina Fleming, who was with the State Guardian Ad Litem Program at the time of this interview, described the best interests of a child like this. We talk, we talk about in North Carolina law that the best interest is the polar star. And I think that's a, it's a good analogy because, you know, the star is always going to be in the sky, but I, I see the best interest as being somewhat of a moving target. And so when you think about the rotation of the earth, the stars look like they're moving. And so what I mean by that is that the best interest really depends on the facts and circumstances of the case and that child's case. And it may vary um, depending on, you know, what may be in a child's best interest at disposition is maybe different two years down the road when we're at permanency planning. And so I think best interest is always going to be, um, you know, you've, you've got to look at the facts and circumstances to make that recommendation. Um, if you've got a sibling group, what may be in one child's best interest is not going to be in another child's best interest. So it's very, um, it's individualized. It's um it's dynamic, it's, it's ever sort of changing, and I think that's something, you know, part of what the guardian ad litem is charged with is, is to make that investigation and bring the, the information back to the court, and so there's this ongoing sort of assessment that continues um, as it comes to best interest. Case planning is typically happening at child and family team meetings, where the department, the parents, the child if appropriate, the child's guardian ad litem, and other appropriate persons are involved. So it's happening outside of the courtroom. And obviously, the services themselves and the visits between the parents and the children and the parents' compliance or lack of compliance with certain conditions, like not using drugs or obtaining employment or applying for housing, are also all happening outside of the courtroom. But there is court oversight. Christy Triplett talked to me about the case planning process, including how the court learns about the case plan. A lot of times we try to have what we call a child and family team meeting, and that is where the family can bring any of their supports to the table, along with the social worker and the supervisor, and they really just talk about, like, what do you need to get your life back on track? What are some things that the agency can do to support you? And what can the people around the table, what can their natural supports do to support them? So at that point, they'll really get a lot of good ideas of what should be on the case plan, and then the case plan is formed from there, individually with the social worker and the parents. Do the children ever participate in the case planning process? 
do participate in the case plan if they are at an age where they can cognitively understand what's going on, usually around 10 and up. What about the court? Is the court aware of, of what the case plan is? And if so, how? Absolutely. The court is always informed of the progress of parents and they're informed in a court report that the social worker submits what the agency is requesting that the parents do. The court oversight happens with review hearings and permanency planning hearings. Essentially, the court's checking for progress and holding the parties accountable. If changes need to be made to the plan, then the court will order those changes. There are timelines for when the court must hold these review and permanency planning hearings. The review hearing must happen within 90 days, that's three months, of the first initial dispositional order. And then more review hearings are happening at least every six months until there's a permanency planning hearing. At the review hearing, the court is looking at reasonable efforts that the department has provided to the parents and the parent's progress in correcting the conditions that led to the child's adjudication or the child's removal. Eventually, the review hearings become permanency planning hearings, and the first permanency planning hearing is held within one year of when the child was first removed from his or her home. So in our case, the children were taken into non-secure custody when the department first filed its petition alleging that the children were neglected. This means that the first permanency planning hearing must be held within 12 months of when that first non-secure custody order was approved by the court after the department filed its petition. At a permanency planning hearing, in addition to looking at the reasonable efforts that the department has provided to the parents and the parents' progress, the court is deciding what will the permanent plan for this child be? In other words, how is this case going to end if everyone does what he or she is supposed to do? There are six possible permanent plans. One is reunification with the parent. As Judge Hartsfield says, Reunification is the dream. Although reunification is a priority, other permanent plans are adoption, guardianship with a non-parent, like a relative, custody to a non-parent, or in very limited cases, if a parent's rights were previously terminated, possibly reinstating those rights, or in a case where the foster child is 16 or 17 years old, another planned permanent living arrangement, which is essentially aging out to independent living as a young adult. At a permanency planning hearing, North Carolina law requires that the court order what's called concurrent permanent plans. This means the court has to order that the department provide reasonable efforts to accomplish two plans, one that the court identified as the primary plan and the other the court identifies as a secondary or backup plan. And unless certain findings are made, reunification has to be one of those two plans. Judges Seiler, Mack, and Hartsfield talk about permanency. Thing that we have to stay focused, reunification or termination and adoption, the thing that is this, the, the pivotal point for us throughout from the beginning that it comes in until it closes out is what is in the best interest of this child. That can never, ever, while we're rooting for mom, rooting for kid, that can never, ever be forgotten. You have to stay focused on what is in the best interest of this child. And so while they're working the plan or not working the plan, that has, each time you come back, you got to know what's in the best interest of the child. And it comes to a point when they're not working the plan, the best interest is for these children to have a forever home. They have permanence. You, uh, they, they need permanency. In addition to monitoring progress on the case plan and identifying concurrent permanent plans, review and permanency planning orders must address the child's placement. A placement is not always in foster care. 
Children may be placed with relatives, which is often called a kinship placement. Children may also be placed with an appropriate adult who is not a relative, but who the child has a substantial relationship with. For example, Aunt Sarah, who is not the biological aunt, but is mom's best friend and is also close with the children. This would be a non-relative kinship placement. Any proposed kinship or non-relative kinship placement will first be assessed by the county department and may be approved with certain conditions that must be followed. In our remaining case, the children were placed with their maternal grandmother. Jamie Hamlet, an attorney for the Alamance County Department, explains this process. The social worker will do a kinship assessment. So that means going out to the home, viewing the home for the structural stability, also asking, a, you know, running criminal record and background checks on the individuals who live in the home. That does sometimes cause problems. I particularly see it where, like, say you're going to move in with your aunt and your the aunt is married and her partner is on the sex offender registry or has a significant criminal record. And sometimes the family has trouble understanding that. Um, I actually had a mom testify last week that it didn't matter that her boyfriend was a sex offender because when he came to the house, he stayed in the bedroom with her. And she didn't see the risk that that placed her child at. Um, And so we have some of that because the aunt will say, well, I'm going to be the one helping her take care of the children. And so we try to work through those, and we do sometimes have court hearings about that, and it ends up being the court's determination if that's an appropriate placement or not. Um, A lot of times adult children who remain in the home, the aunt's son, um, that might present a problem because of his record or because of things he has done. Um, And so we try to work through those. I know sometimes, um, like we have a case right now, where two siblings are placed with the grandparents. Um, The grandfather drives all over town and we can't determine that he's had a license in a really, really long time. Um, And so the rule is just when the children have to go to appointments or when they travel, the grandmother has to drive. So the workers do try to put, come up with plans to, I don't wanna say work around, but to deal with those things that could potentially present safety issues for the children. Okay, your adult son is occasionally in the home, but he can never be left alone or unsupervised with the children, and he can't do direct care needs. Visitation must also be addressed and ordered, unless the court finds it's not in the children's best interest. In our case, the court ordered the visitation schedule with the parents and ordered the parents to participate in the visitation with their children. Judges Corpening, Hartsfield, and Siler Mack talk about ordering visitation. We, as judges, have the authority to say, Here's what visitation is going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the interesting dynamic, you know, one of our speakers at our conference, not this summer, but last summer, who was from the National Association of Juvenile and Family Court Judges, said that even just doubling that one hour to two hours a week. Yep. Makes in their room. Yeah, I was in there. Just doubling it to two hours a week difference. can have a dramatic impact on time to permanence. Even though the case plan is specific to the facts of each case, there are some common requirements that are often included in case plans, which parent attorney Dorothy Hairston Mitchell describes. So, of course, get obtain and maintain housing, um, obtain and maintain employment, um, parenting class, because for whatever reason, even if it's just she was she didn't have housing and she missed appointments at school, they equate that to being you're a bad parent and you need somebody to tell you how to be a better parent. And... Um, most of the time they ask for a substance abuse evaluation. I argue against it because I, I make sure that if there were no allegations that even 
remotely made it seem that she may have an issue with it. I'm arguing against it. Why why are you making her do extra stuff, you know, or whatever? But the the boilerplate ones are going to be obtain and maintain housing, obtain and maintain employment, stable employment, or some other source of income, um, and then a parenting class. In our case, the parents were ordered to obtain and maintain housing and employment and to submit to random drug tests. Dorothy mentioned arguing against services, like substance abuse evaluations, when issues related to substance abuse weren't alleged in the petition. That's because the court's authority is limited to what the law allows it to order. When it comes to what it can order a parent to do, that's limited to parenting classes, if the classes are available in the judicial district where the parent resides, child support, if the parent has an ability to pay, and to take certain designated steps that would remedy or correct the conditions that led to the child's removal or adjudication. This doesn't mean the court can order anything that would improve the child's or parent's life, but instead, the court's authority is limited to why the county department got involved. Here's how Jamie Hamlet, an attorney who represents the Alamance County Department, explains it. I have tried to help draft some general language and to try to help the uh, social workers think of the case plans, not as cookie cutter case plans. Um, If you, like we had a child who came in basically because his parents weren't meeting his mental health needs. And I noticed that the case plan said, you know, maintain housing, maintain employment. So I went to the social worker and said, why is this a part of the case plan? Because this father has never had a lack of housing. This father has never had a lack of employment. The issues are, is he does not acknowledge that his child has the extensive mental health issues that he does. And he fights service providers. He, he and his wife always know better than the next person. And that's what the case plan needs to be about. What were the reasons that led to removal? Other times when attorneys don't agree with something or they want to fine-tune it, I may step in. But in general, the case plan is the prerogative of the social worker and the family. Jamie also describes how services or conditions can also differ between the parents, depending on the parent's individual's needs that cause the child's adjudication or removal. When you have multiple parents involved and one parent will get upset and say, well, why doesn't he have to do a substance abuse assessment? If you're making me do it, he should have to do it. Or why do I have to get mental health treatment and she doesn't have to get mental health treatment? So sometimes the court will try to explain to the parent, you know, these are specific to the needs of the party. Um, We actually had a hearing the other week where the mother has been um, demonstrating quite a bit of delusional behavior and So we're asking that she get more intensive mental health treatment. And her response is, well, why don't you make him? And we actually asked her to get a substance abuse assessment as well because we just wanted to rule out that it wasn't some sort of use, although no one really had an indication, but her behaviors have just become so bizarre. Um, And the court just, you know, said, I'm not going to order him to do that right now. We don't have a reason to believe that he's having any mental health issues. And the court tried to explain to the mom you know, he's employed, he, you know, he's responsive, he is able for the most part to maintain his temperament, he, you know, and when you see him get defensive, I mean, sometimes people get upset, but he's able to calm himself down and bring it back in. Judge Hartsfield talks about how the court needs to stay focused on what it has the authority to do, which is address why the children were removed or why they were adjudicated and not what the county department we want to address that goes well beyond the reasons why the children were removed. DSS 
can be a blessing, but most of the time for people, DSS is not that blessing. Because once DSS gets involved, we forget the Janet Mason lesson that I will remember as long as I live. Why did these children come into care? That, that's, that's my own, that should be my only concern as the judge. But unfortunately, when social workers and attitudes and temperaments and all those things start combining, foster parents putting their two cent worth in, it's almost like when you, when you start picking up rocks, sooner or later you're going to find a snake. And, and, and that's, that, that happens a lot of times. So this kid who came into care, let's say for uh, unsafe condition or housework and cleaning or whatever, we go further and see that mama got a boyfriend living with her, has got a criminal record, and da, da, da. so it gets bigger and bigger and bigger most of the time. And it really sometimes it's connected to why the kids came into care or whatever, but it makes that reunification harder and harder. Jamie Hamlet talks about the case plan in the context of housing instability or homelessness. The social workers are trying very early on to figure out what's the impediment. For example, a lot of the Section 8 or income-based programs require that you have Social Security cards, birth certificates. Um, You might have to pay for the income-based housing a credit record check and a criminal record check. So they start trying to process that with the family. Where is your child's Social Security card? Okay, so you don't have the Social Security card you know, that means we need to get one and helping them process that. You don't have a birth certificate. If it's a local birth certificate, we can usually get that. Um, We run into trouble when it's out-of-state birth certificates. Um, But we try to go ahead and start getting parents to look at those things and addressing them, especially in regards to housing, because if there's a wait list, that can take quite a long time. Then we start trying to, a lot of times you can't get housing because you don't have income. So we start trying to get them to work on that. Of course, if there's mental health or substance abuse problems, we try to help families recognize, you know, we have the rare case that comes along where the parent says, I'm going to get a job because that's what I need to do. And we try to explain to them, you know, you can do that. But if you don't address the mental health or the substance abuse issues, then this is only going to be a temporal fix because these things are going to roar their ugly heads back up in the future. I think that what's most important to know about housing is that what is the issue that's causing the housing instability. Um, There are so many resources out there, whether they're governmental or natural supports, that really there's something else going on. And that's true for a lot of things. I like to talk to people about, well, here is the symptom, but what's the underlying cause? You know, when you have a headache, you can take an aspirin, but if you take an aspirin every day for the headache, eventually you need to ask what's causing the headache. And we've had some cases where the social worker really started digging, and on the surface, it didn't seem like there were significant issues. There was just this symptomatic thing. But once they really started digging, there were some pretty complex underlying reasons. Um, And so it's really important for social workers and attorneys to take the time to dig down to that nitty-gritty. Because what I see as one of the biggest failures for children is that you reunify them and they come back into the system because you didn't treat that underlying issue. In our remaining case, the children were removed and adjudicated neglected because they lacked proper care and supervision from their parents, and they lived in an environment that was injurious to their welfare because they were living in a van that did not provide adequate shelter and heat or an adequate food source, and they lacked proper hygiene. Also, the children were exposed to their parents' domestic violence. And the parents were ordered to cooperate with their case plan and be in weekly contact with the department social worker, to attend and participate in mental health treatment and domestic violence counseling, 
and to pay child support. Dorothy Harrison Mitchell talks about what it's like for a parent to try to work the case plan. I try to give them a visual of that race and the, the, the what is it, the hurdles. Mm-hmm. And you have DSS or the court puts forth four hurdles. If they, they get through the fourth one, you get to the finish line. But in these cases, you get to the third one, and then it's like four more hurdles that's put up. All of a sudden. It went from a 100 hurdle right. race to a 400 hurdle <laughs> Exactly. Race. So be ready for it. What happens if your parent falls over a hurdle? If they fall, then I'm t- first of all, I'm, I'm telling them from the beginning, I'm here with you. Try if, if you feel yourself falling, scream for me. Ask me for help. And so I can try to help you, you know, keep you from falling. But if they fall, I try to tell them it's not the end of the world. We can get back up. You know, say it's uh, the probably the easiest example. Well, in relation to us talking about um, housing, say they missed a, a payment. So they, they weren't able to pay the rent this month. And so they're looking at, uh, say, a month and now they're in the second month and they're like, I don't know where I'm going to get the money. I might be facing eviction. So then they let me know. Hopefully they let somebody know so we can get on top of it, try to find them some housing assistance to help them pay that back rent, get it back on track, keep it rolling. Let everybody know that this is what happened. Don't, you know, don't be ashamed to say I still need the help. Because a lot of parents, that's what they they feel. They feel like I can't tell the social worker that I wasn't able to pay my rent, and that now I'm not. I don't know how I'm going to get the rent for this month either. So then they're like facing: Should I? You know, I'm ashamed to tell it because also one, I'm ashamed, and if I tell it, I may get in more trouble because this is what brought us into court in the first place. But I tell the clients, it's better for you to ask for the help because then it puts the onus back on the social worker to get you that help because that's what they're there for. So we, you know, if they fall, we just try to get them back up as fast as we can and keep it, keep the running going. Some of the barriers to completing the case plan may be a result of the various demands that are placed on the parent. I discussed this with Dorothy Harrison Mitchell. Their DSS is going to always ask for supervised visitation, which is going to limit not only that it is limited because it's supervised, but it's going to limit them with time because they don't have a lot of social workers that can supervise visits so they have certain time slots that we're having to tap into if they're any and so if you have to tap into a specific time slot and you're the parent that you're representing has a job how does that work they have to miss work or they don't get a visit simply put and in your experience have employers been understanding about the need for some flexibility in terms of court time in addition to actual scheduled time to see their own children? I've seen it all. I've seen either one, the parent is ashamed and has not informed their employer that they need this time off for this reason. So they just, for some reason, you know, they don't tell them so they don't get the time off and so they miss a visit. Or they do tell them and they've been overly accommodating to the parent and understanding and allowed it. Or a parent may do something like, have it have their lunch time be their time when they go for the visit or something like that but i wish that it was more that dss was you know more willing to work with them and sympathetic to them because of course we all know that one of the orders is always going to be that they are gainfully employed or they have some source of income to be able to provide for their children so it's kind of like you making them choose and and this is what visitation as well as when they get into disposition things where they have to go to all these different parenting classes anger management um, mental health services and all these different things and it's like so much they have to do 
in addition to trying to work. Jamie Hamlet talks about how the court learns of a family's progress or lack of progress from the county department's perspective. Um, in our dispositional court reports, the social worker generally outlines the activities of the case plan and the objectives. Um, and through the process of dispositional review and permanency planning hearings, you know, like say address mental health issues so they don't impact parenting, they will write compliant or non-compliant and then they'll address like what steps have been taken. You know, the parent did their assessment, it recommended X, Y, and Z, the parent has been compliant. Um, sometimes they'll report that the compliance or lack of compliance is due to the parent. Sometimes they'll report that it's due to the provider, not, you know, maybe there's not funding. Um, so that's followed up on in the subsequent court reports. And hopefully as time goes by, there's more compliance and less non-compliance. And Judge Hartsfield discusses how a court looks at continuing with the plan or changing a plan. And we have to have permanency planning hearings ever so often that are statutorily mandated. And what, what changes that is when parents aren't working the plan, when they haven't even enrolled in, in any of this counseling, when they haven't, they've missed every appointment with the doctor for the psychological evaluation, when they're still being drug tested and coming up dirty for opiates and every, all other kind of drugs, when they have missed their visits. Visits are big with me. I mean, visits, you know, if you're getting a chance to go to DSS and visit with your kids and do whatever for smaller children more and more, and when the worker comes back and says that, you know, they had six visits since the last time they saw you, and they, they haven't been to but one. I mean, so those kinds of things add up to seeing whether or not you're really serious and whether you're working the plan to reunify with your kid. And after some point, you know, the court in this discretion can change the permanent plan. Or the team may decide that we want to change this permanent plan because this person's just not doing what they're supposed to do. So that's how we get to a change in plan and not get into the end of the case. Sometimes people work the plan quick. Sometimes people say, look, I called this lawyer. I'm going to do everything I need to do. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get back on track. I'm going to pass my drug test. And these can be short-lived. And we'll, we'll do a, a you know, temporary placement you know, or you know, put the kid in the home on weekends or start that move back into the home quicker. But it depends on the parent. And I tell everybody that. The ball's in your court now. I don't, I, I'm really out of this. The ball is in your court. If you decide that you love marijuana better than you love Michael, that's on you. But the ball is in your court. You know, when can I get my kids back, Ms. Hartsfield? Whenever you show me that you are serious about their safety and security first, it's when we'll start working them back into your home. I was curious about when a parent was unable to obtain and maintain housing, when housing instability, or in our case, homelessness, was one of the issues that led to the child's removal and adjudication. And here's part of the conversation between myself and Jessica Ford, supervisor with Catawba County Department. So if you have a family where everything but housing has been addressed. There was substance abuse or there was domestic violence and the parent has completed counseling or, or a program that helped address those issues and they've, they've really owned those issues and they've been able to generalize whatever coping skills that they've learned in that, in that programming, but there isn't a, an apartment for them to move into. Would that prevent a child from being returned to their parents' care? I mean, a child does still need to have, you know, 
a safe um, place to go back to. But oftentimes, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be independent housing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they can be living with uh, family members. They could be living with, you know, their coworker. Um, oftentimes, that's what we see. It's a very unusual, I, I can't think of a time at all, actually, where that was the one last thing that the family um, had to do above all those other things that you mentioned. I also talked about this with Judges Hartsfield, Siler Mack, and Corpening. So housing, sometimes in your dispositional orders, you may order, maintain, or obtain housing. Suitable, stable suitable, housing. stable housing. Suitable, stable That's housing. That's usually the words. Suitable and stable are usually the words. Yeah. And so what happens if a parent isn't able to find that? What if their income is such that they need to have subsidy for housing and there's a wait list and it's not available is that going to interfere with reunification it may it may put unification back for a while yes i've had a, a young lady who's been you know trying to get her little coins together to get and move into her place forever but what dss will is able to do is to get you moved up maybe for a second eight a section eight voucher that you know you may have been number thirty three they may be able to move you up because they understand that you have to get reunification with your kids. It may be able if there's a thought that there's reunification that the landlord will let you go ahead and get this three bedroom apartment, knowing that there's a chance that your children may come back home and you'll have a place for them. Um, so DSS is intervention, which everybody, nobody likes. I've never seen anybody that liked it, but they can do some things and maneuver through that system that's often very, very murky for the parent to get them the things that they need and put them in touch with people that will be able to help them get on their feet. And they've so, also got, DSS also has access to some federal money for thank housing. You. They do. Um, you know, independent of Section 8. That's right. Um, right. And, and so they can help them, but the, but the parent has to be willing to, to cooperate and, and get involved in the application process. Exactly. Um, you know, it has to, has to be pursuing employment, you know, and working their plan. And, and so as long as they're doing all that, then they may become eligible for housing through that. And so then housing shouldn't be the barrier. Sometimes it, it can be. If a parent doesn't cooperate with that or if they're not eligible, then it, it, it can be. But so, so typically, in a, in a situation where housing's a problem, it's not the only problem. Dorothy Harrison Mitchell discusses doubling up and adequate shelter. It comes down to do you have any family members or do you have any friends that you can move in with that their housing is adequate for them and you all? And so DSS won't say, well, now it's too many people living in that house or it's four kids in a, a room and it's two bunk beds and that's just too much. You know what I mean? So it, it brings up all these other issues that they didn't realize. They, I mean, we all know that there are lots of families who multiple people live in the house and everybody's provided for it. And although the court looks to the standard of the child's best interests, the parent doesn't have to provide the best home. The parent must provide appropriate care and supervision in a safe home and be an adequate parent. I asked Dorothy, what does adequate mean from the parent attorney perspective? Adequate means um, proper housing, safe housing, um, a roof over your head, water, there's food there, there's electricity, you know, all of those basic needs are being met um they're they're there in the home um adequate meaning they're in school they're going to school daily they're on time um the the mom is or the parent is going to meetings if they're called to the school for meetings um 
if they are the child has to go to therapy that they're getting to the therapy appointments you know all those what would have been the basic and then the extras that are necessary to make sure the child gets what they need um those are the adequate case planning helps a parent get there to be an adequate parent in our case there was a concurrent plan of reunification and custody with a court-approved caretaker remember the children are living with their maternal grandmother in addition to the other conditions in the case plan, the court ordered the mother, who worked full-time making 11 to $13 an hour, but could not account for where her money was spent, such that she had been unable to provide for the children's minimal needs, she was ordered to work with the caseworker on a budgeting plan. Ultimately, the case will end when a permanent plan has been achieved. But before we get to those final outcomes and learn about what happens in our case, we'll hear about the children's best interest from the child's guardian ad litem perspective. Tune in to our next episode to hear from the people who speak for the child. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sarah Pasquale, and I'd like to thank the following people who were featured in today's episode. Chrissy Triplett, Jessica Ford, Jamie Hamlet, Dorothy Hairston Mitchell, Judge Hartsfield, Judge Corpening, and Judge Siler Mack. This episode was produced by Stephanie Pankey and Duncan Yetman, with production help from Ben Trybulski. You can subscribe to Beyond the Bench on iTunes or Stitcher. And while you're there, please leave us a review. We want to hear your feedback. To learn more about my work and the various educational outreach products and programs by the UNC School of Government, visit us online at sog.unc.edu. See you next time.